Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The great things about America is the idea of aspiration, the idea that somebody can come from nowhere and become someone and can build a good life and own a house. That's not the trajectory in Silicon Valley anymore. Even worse, in my mind, they support policies that make it impossible for anybody who isn't in the privileged classes to ever move upwards. The reality is that Silicon Valley has become a center of almost everything that is now assaulting the middle and working classes in the West. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Joel Kotkin. Joel, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Joel, it's great to have you back on. I think it's been a bit too long since we last spoke. A lot has happened in the world and a lot of stuff that I want to get your views on. I think it would be remiss of me not to kick off with Silicon Valley Bank (laughs) and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, because this is a very important moment. And also it touches on lots of the stuff that you write about in relation to the tech gurus, the changing nature of capitalism, what's happening to uh, uh, the business world and so on. So SVB was a pretty crucial bank for the tech world. More than half of venture-backed startups did their banking there. Now it's fallen apart, it's being bailed out, and it's in a bit of a mess. So I'll kick off with a broad question. What do you think this tells us about the state of Silicon Valley? What what insights is this uh, collapse giving us about that part of the world? Well, I, I think there are several things. You know, first of all, I go back... My, you know, this is one of the few advantages of, of of being old. I was there when they started Silicon Valley mm-hmm. Bank. I knew Roger Smith. I they were, you know, they were part of this amazing ecosystem of startups that very often then became major companies. It was really quite an exciting period. And I think what what uh, Silicon Valley Bank did is they thought that it, it would go on forever. But the nature of the companies and the Valley economy changed. First of all, we are now out of the era of garage startups and lots of new companies. I remember when there was a period where like 40 companies were competing in the disk drive business. Now, eventually it winnowed down to one or two, but it was great competition. Same thing with the PC business. Today, uh, the Valley is essentially the headquarters of, you know, Three, you could go maybe to five, six giant companies who dominate absolutely everything, usually have 80, 90% market share. Um, And the startup companies now are basically designed to be acquired by those companies. Um, It's a very different dynamic. And I think Silicon Valley Bank was in an old dynamic. Some of it was self-inflicted. They banked a lot of, you know, kind of dodgy, you know, sort of politically correct companies and um, like BuzzFeed, places like that, that, you know, basically you had to have a ideological uh, fixation to, to think that, that these were ever going to make any money. I mean, you had companies that were eating cash at an enormously rapid rate, but not producing much in the way of profit. So I think this reflected sort of a dunderheadedness, and, and also the change in the kind of people. When I was working in Silicon Valley back in the 70s and 80s, most of the VCs were guys who came out of the industry itself. Most of them were engineers, um, and they wanted to make a better mousetrap. That was the whole game. Now, Silicon Valley is dominated by the same people who've destroyed economies everywhere they go, MBAs and... Um, you know, uh, management consultants, you know, people from Harvard, Yale, Stanford. The old Silicon Valley was a lot of people who went to obscure schools, went to state schools. San Jose State was really the big uh, source of people. 
But as the valley became less and less about making things and more and more about ephemera and about essentially selling our privacy to to advertisers, it became a very different valley. And the Silicon Valley Bank didn't really adjust to that, thought the game would, would you know, the dance would never stop. The, the music would continue and um, as it had in the past. And people are, you know, sort of locked into a, a mindset that they didn't change. You know, as a, a old Japanese sensei of mine once said, the hardest thing is how to unlearn the secrets of your past success. Mm. And Silicon Valley banks, people thought this can go on forever, even though we're not building products that people need. We're actually building products that people hate uh, <laughs> or fear. Um and um, and we're going to somehow um, continue to create these companies that will continue to make money. Um, and the reality was quite different than that. And and so Silicon Valley Bank was almost caught in a time war. You know, they thought it, they were partying like it was 1985. I think that's a very useful starting point. And I want to ask you about that delusion, that delusional sense that many of them had precisely that this would go on forever, it would last forever, nothing could possibly interrupt it. What do you think that speaks to? What I find interesting about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and and what we're learning now about what was happening there, it seems a combination of things were taking place in Silicon Valley. On the one hand, easy money, and on the other hand, easy virtue. So you have the splurging of money into all sorts of cranky startups and big businesses, some of which are built on sand and are not profitable at all, like Uber and Deliveroo, and will never be profitable in any meaningful sense. So you had this money sloshing around, and they thought it would slosh around forever. And then at the same time, you have the virtue side of it, where, as you say, Silicon Valley changed over the decades to become something more ideological. They were more likely to invest in things that chimed with their ideological outlook. It's very interesting that Silicon Valley Bank made more effort to advertise the diversity of its board than it did to learn about banking and risk assessment, which uh, suggests there was a real uh, misstep there. So it really tells us something about, as you say, where Silicon Valley is going and how corrupted by its own sense of virtue it has become. Well, I mean, where Silicon Valley is going is it's it's becoming, in some ways, a weird facsimile of the big three in Detroit prior to 1970 and um, is having a very hard time adjusting. So, you know, what's happening is, A, many companies are just moving, small companies, but also some very big ones have moved their headquarters out because one of the mythologies of Silicon Valley is we can impose as many taxes, regulatory burdens on companies, but they have to be here. Well, the reality is you don't have to be here. And particularly after the rise of um, of the online uh, work, you know, the remote work, it became increasingly clear that you didn't have to be there. Um, and as you became less and less industrial, you actually didn't need to be there. You know, the highlight of the Silicon Valley was this interaction between the computer companies, the semiconductor companies, the semiconductor equipment companies. There was sort of this intimate knowledge, which was really very unique. Now, that knowledge has spread to all sorts of places, notably Taiwan, uh, but also to Korea. Um, And now, if you look at the semiconductor industry, which is the basis of a lot of what happens, um, it's building plants in Arizona, it's building plants in Texas, it's building plants in Ohio. Nobody talks about building anything in California. So that expertise that made the Valley unique is gone. And that the more and more you move to the ephemeral side, the less you're tied to any particular location. Um, and so the valley has lost its centrality. And then when you add to that very high taxes, regulation, um, and incredibly high housing prices. So if I'm a young engineer, you know, let's say 30 years old, starting a family, and I can go to Phoenix or Dallas or Houston or Nashville and live a middle-class life, where in Silicon Valley, I'm going to be living in a little apartment. I'll be a renter for life. I mean, I think for the average um, wage earner in the Bay Area, it will take about 100 years to save enough money for the down payment. I mean, it just doesn't work. 
we have to remember what the valley was. I guess that's maybe what I want to say, because, you know, I had the advantage of seeing it when it was happening. Mm. The valley was a agricultural area that became filled with suburban houses, shopping malls. No, you can sneer all you want. But for many people, if I'm a, a, I'm a young engineer coming from Indiana and I can live in a nice house surrounded by, by fruit trees and good schools um, and I can drive to work in 15 minutes, what's wrong with that? It, it was great. Now, if you come to Silicon Valley, you're a young person without a lot of money. You haven't invested uh, anything so far in housing. You're basically looking at, at a life of, of essentially a kind of serfdom. It may be a, a, a comfortable serfdom. It might be, you know, you might have a little bit of money. You might take some nice trips. You might buy a Tesla. But, but the reality is you're never going to live as well as the engineer who came to Santa Clara in 1970. It's just a different world. And Silicon Valley stopped being uh, you know, competitive in terms of quality of life, even though it's a beautiful area with a, an ideal climate. But what we know that that's not enough. Look what's happening to Los Angeles, I mean, which has an even better climate and has a more spectacular typography. I think what happened was Silicon Valley, and to some extent California in general, just became absolutely convinced that this was the place you had to be. Very much like the people who ran New York City. You had to be in these places. And and so we could be as indifferent to people's needs. Uh, we, could, we could tax them as much as we want because they have to be here. And the reality is they didn't have to be there. And if you look at where tech jobs are growing, they're growing in Florida, they're growing in Texas, they're growing in, in Arizona, they're growing in Tennessee, they're growing in Nevada. Um, almost all the manufacturing is outside of California now. Um, and, and obviously a huge number of these jobs also now go to India and China. So I actually wanted to ask you about the tech exodus. And uh, you've written about the tech exodus in one of your recent pieces, you point out that this has been happening for a long time. It's not a recent phenomenon. And between 2009 and 2016, 13,000 companies left California, which is a pretty extraordinary figure. And I wanted to ask you what you think the longer term consequences of the tech exodus could be. So you've outlined some of them there. Some people can now potentially work in big tech, but they could live somewhere that's more affordable, that's maybe a better place to raise a family and so on. You've also written about how the tech exodus potentially could spread the talent of Silicon Valley. There is undoubted talent there and spread it to other parts of the US and spread it to other parts of the world. That could be a benefit as well. Do you think the tech exodus might also impact on I guess, the political influence of Silicon Valley. You've written a lot over the years about Silicon Valley's role as part of the new clerisy, its influence over the political imagination, the cultural imagination. If it is spread out more, so it's not so concentrated, it's not its own physical and moral universe where they can continually reinforce their way of thinking amongst themselves and then through their uh, projects, could that potentially weaken their moral cultural stranglehold over contemporary discussion or is that going to be continued virtually anyway no i i mean i think what what you're maybe what uh, the way i would put it is that silicon valley was a role model for many parts of the country like if you look at the growth of austin you look at the growth of of the raleigh uh, durham area uh look at what's happened in phoenix you look at what's happened even in parts of nevada Everyone realized that Silicon Valley had developed a, 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 um, a formula which was based on access to universities, access, attracting young uh, engineering talent, um, being very open internationally. But you know what's happened is, you know, there's an old uh, saying from an African-American um, pitcher in American baseball called Satchel Page who said, don't look behind you, somebody might be catching up to you. Well, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, we now see that people are saying, first of all, a lot of regions have said, look, the people in North Carolina looked at Silicon Valley and said, well, how do we duplicate that? And they did a lot of stuff that, that worked very well. Austin, you know, similarly. Um, 
uh, Phoenix similarly, you know, the University of Arizona, the University of, of, uh, of Texas have become major institutions. When I went to Berkeley, nobody thought of UT even in the same paragraph as the University of California. Now you have to, and you have to look at a place like Rice University in Houston as Vanderbilt in, in Nashville. So what's happened is the model has been, in some senses, duplicated but duplicated without the political regime that California comes with. And that's where the problems are. I mean, you now have laws, you know, you, that determine who you can have on your board of directors. Um, let's just say this is not the era to be a white male in, in California. Um, it's, you know, sort of almost like uh, being, you know, the, the scarlet letter or something, you know, it's, it's so, so if you're a young, ambitious person, do you want to go to a, a part of the country where college admissions, school admissions are determined by race? And this is particularly bad for Asians. Uh, do you want to go to a place where you can't possibly set up any kind of industrial facility because it contributes to GHG with the imbecility that if you built a semiconductor plant in California, it would probably be infinitely better for the environment than if you built the same plant in China, or you built the same plant in Texas. I mean, that's one of the things we found is that so many people and companies have left California that essentially whatever we've reduced in emissions, we've just put it to someplace else where the emissions are greater. Anyone who knows geography knows that the Santa Clara Valley in particular, and Southern California as well, has the best climate for energy use just because you don't need air conditioning and heating vast majority of the year. When you f take that same company and you move it to Dallas, I can tell you it gets colder in Dallas in the winter and it gets a lot hotter in the summer. And so I think it, it, it's sort of the self-defeating idea that, that somehow we're going to create this sort of pristine California. But if you take global warming seriously, it's global. It's not California warming, it's global warming. And yet, if you're a company in California, you are so restricted in what you do. So, yes, you might keep your top engineering talent there because there's still the power of inertia. One thing, if I was to criticize my own earlier work, um, is inertia is a powerful thing. Silicon Valley has inertia. It still has these companies, the big companies who are, appear to be staying. Um, you have a group of engineers, particularly people in their you know, 50s and 60s who bought their homes when they were affordable and are, are fairly comfortable, have no reason to leave. Like someone like me, why would I leave California if I absolutely don't have to? I bought my first house here in 1980, <laughs> you know, so I've ridden this inflation pretty decently. So I think what we're seeing is you've got to look into the next generation. We take a look at millennial migration. Where California and the Bay Area are losing is they're losing about 35 to 54 population. This is pre-pandemic. 35 to 54. What, what are the characteristics of those people? They're just starting out. They're getting into their peak earning years, and they're very likely to be getting married or having kids. Those people are the ones who are leaving. And those were the people who made Silicon Valley what it was. Just sticking with Silicon Valley for a moment longer, I, I want to ask you about the inertia that you mentioned there, the stasis, the the fact that it, it it lacks the dynamism that it had back in the 1980s and even the dynamism that you say existed around Silicon Valley Bank uh, back in the days of Roger Smith. Um, and now it has come to be dominated by the big oligarchs, the huge companies that you mentioned earlier. I wanted to ask you how much of this is a familiar story of capitalism um, and it, it's possibly a microcosm of capitalism, I guess, um, and how much of it is unique to what was taking place in Silicon Valley and, and you know, the kind of uh, unreal things that were being created or, it, well, nothing really was being created. Uh, but And what we've ended up with are huge companies, which basically, as you say, sell our privacy um, to advertisers. And it's not exactly like the great oil discoveries of the past or the construction of machines or or the industrial revolution. So there's something unique to it. But I wonder if you could just describe its journey from dynamism to oligarchy 
Is that a Silicon Valley problem or is that a capitalism problem? Well, there are great examples historically. You know, um, if you can start, let's say, with the origins of modern capitalism, Venice had a model based on specialized industrial districts, concentrations of skills that didn't exist anywhere else. That became more and more corrupt. Other cities that were sort of hungrier and and were less debilitated, you know, obviously you start with Antwerp, then to Amsterdam, then to London. Um, and so you, you have this progression. Marx talked about this uh, quite a bit. And then you have the, the greatest parallel, I think, is the Industrial Revolution in the UK. I mean, there was a period in which there was a combination of capital and skills and business acumen in the Midlands of the UK that was, in many ways, dominated the entire planet. It was the absolute center. It was unique. And a lot of the people who did it, yes, they may have gotten money from the aristocracy, but they they were mechanics. They were the children sometimes of yeoman farmers. They were not the elites. Um, and what happened to them, uh, uh, Martin Wiener has a great book about the, the deindustrialization of Britain um, in the 20th century. And, you know, they decided they wanted to be fancy people. <laughs> they wanted to be lords. They wanted to, to live in the countryside. They wanted to marry the aristocracy. Exactly what happened to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was a bunch of engineering nerds who mainly came, or in large part, came from working class families. I think about Don Valentine, who was one of the key people backing Apple. And Don was, you know, besides the fact that he was fairly conservative politically, you know, he was a, an Irish Catholic, you know, kid from, from the Bronx, went to Fordham, you know, used to wear the, these horrendous golfing you know, plaid pants and stuff like that. But he understood the industry. He could sit down and say, oh, I'm an engineer. I understand what you're doing. Here's how we get to profits. That person has been replaced by a Harvard MBA, a Stanford MBA, who thinks somehow they're going to get to be really rich and, and also be great virtue signalers and save the planet. Well, I don't think that model is particularly successful. Another example, which would be maybe more apt than the American experience, is, is Detroit. There was a period in the 1920s in which Detroit was the fastest growing city in the United States, in which there was a combination of skills and of entrepreneurship that really drove that industry. Um, and what happened eventually is it became like Silicon Valley, dominated by you know three, four major companies who got fat and lazy and have had their clocks cleaned by first the Germans, then the Japanese, and now the Koreans. And I think eventually by the Chinese. I think that's probably inevitable. So what we're seeing is the same thing happening in Silicon Valley. Um, the fact that they're not making cars and they're making you know surveillance equipment may be uh, a different business, but I don't think it's a guarantor of future profits and future growth. You know, it's like people. People get old, and then they get old. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, things are different. You you know, there are things you can't do. Now, the, the key thing is, how do you adjust? And I think Silicon Valley needs to adjust to a reality in which it is no longer the epicenter of the global um, tech industry. It's an important center. Puget Sound's an important center. Um, certainly, Tokyo is an important set, um, area. Shenzhen is another. Singapore is another. You know, Bangalore is another. But we're going to be living in a tech universe in which there isn't one dominant center, but there will be many. Silicon Valley will be one of them, but it will not be the dominant center. Just like Detroit is not the center of the automobile industry today. You've got to take in, into context Tokyo and Seoul you know, uh, and eventually um, uh, the cities in China, northern Mexico. I mean, we're talking about a movement in which Silicon Valley's supreme advantage will have eroded. It won't disappear. It will still be important, but it will not be the center of the universe. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode.
that's a very useful way of understanding what the Silicon Valley experience and decline, I guess, uh, what it has in common with earlier episodes in in the history of capitalism. But I, I want to now touch on what is different about the people who now run the new capitalism in comparison with the capitalists of old. So you've written about how there are pretty clear differences between, if you look at the founders of industrial capitalism, the leaders of the industrial revolution, as you say, they often came from working classes, even from uh, peasant families. Their values were based around work, family, faith, uh, being sensible, being wise, being thrifty in certain circumstances. Um, and if you fast forward to the, the new leaders of capitalism, their values are very, very different and um, often very much at odds with the values of most ordinary people, and sometimes knowingly so, and they, they can adopt this incredibly imperious attitude towards deplorables and rednecks and chavs, as we call them in the UK, people lower down the social ladder who they see as being wrongheaded, stupid, xenophobic, and so on. So a, a, a huge rift has opened up, it seems to me, between the leaders of capitalism and everyone else which wasn't necessarily as pronounced in the past, and values could have been shared even between classes. How do you explain that? I mean, you write about the impact of the managerial revolution of the 1950s, and that had, that had a transformative impact on the executive elites in terms of the changing nature of their values and their way of life. Could you just say a bit more about that, how you think that then impacts on future capitalist leaders like the ones in Silicon Valley? I think there are a couple of things that have happened. One is Obviously, the, the initial people were engineers, and their approach to things was what an engineer would historically do. They've been replaced by people who are increasingly oriented towards finance, um, towards media. Um, there's much more aristocracy, if you will, in Silicon Valley than there was when it was coming up. Um, there's a greater emphasis on you know, credentials and pedigree than there was in the past. Um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, traveling to China with a bunch of Chinese uh, American executives from Silicon Valley. They had come up the hard way. They had, you know, they had gone to school in South Dakota. They had really built things by doing them. The people you get now, they, you know, they didn't start as designers of, of silicon chips or running factories. They came out MBAs and they live in a ephemeral um, universe, you know, that is basically just manipulating symbols. And that's, that's who runs Silicon Valley today. The other thing is that they have adopted, in part because they're in the Bay Area, which is, you know, sort of a major center of lunacy anyway, um, they have adopted attitudes um, that are, let's just say, not oriented towards merit. If you go to Silicon Valley Bank, so much of their attention was on you know, supporting transgender, supporting, you know, uh, you know, gay rights, supporting women's rights, supporting, you know, environmental companies. It became virtue signaling as opposed to making money. Yeah. And because the kind of people who were there were no longer people who were, you know, involved in the process um, from the beginning. The other thing, and this is really important, I think, in the old industrial companies in Silicon Valley, take Hewlett Packard, for instance, they were very cognizant of the importance of their workforce. You know, Tom Peters wrote about this uh, quite a bit um, because you were dependent on the people on the factory floor. The grunts were important. If you're a social media company, there are no grunts. You hire grunts to do your catering, um, but that's about it. But you don't have a bunch of, you know, high school graduates who, who may be very good at doing a particular thing. You don't, you don't need those people anymore. So they don't even have any contact with the vast majority of the population. That was something that at least as bad as they were, whether you were Andrew Carnegie or Henry Ford, you had to think about the people on the line because they, they made the product. Today, the people who make the product are either in Bangalore or they're H-1B visa holders, you know, 70% of the tech workforce in Silicon Valley is not even American citizens. That was not the case before. There were always immigrants and they were played a great role, but not like what it is now. So in, in, in a funny way, I think that these people are very out of touch 
with the country they're in. And I feel very little loyalty to it. I mean, some of the biggest backers of China are Silicon Valley companies. I mean, uh, Apple Computers has already signed an agreement to share their technology with China and to start buying their chips, some of their chips from China. Um, If you read things from people from Apple and some of these other tech companies, I guess it's it's nicer to live in in Silicon Valley than in China, but I, I think they don't see the future being here. So there is not the kind of visceral connection to the culture of the vast majority of the country, um, and I think that's that's at root of a lot of this. It you know the the great things about America uh, for all our many problems is the idea of aspiration, the idea that somebody can come from nowhere and become some someone and can build a good life and own a house that's not the trajectory in silicon valley anymore and even worse in my mind they support policies that make it impossible for anybody who isn't in the privileged classes to ever move upwards they're not only not providing opportunity they're trying to squash the opportunities of other people now they're doing it in the name of the planet or they're doing it in the name of equity or they're doing it for whatever reason they want to give you but the reality is that silicon valley has become a center of almost everything that is now assaulting the middle and working classes in the west as opposed to being what they once were which was something that liberated people and provided an enormous role model. You know, if you're a young a young person growing up in Taiwan and you see what that somebody went to Silicon Valley and became a billionaire and you say, I want to do that too. Well, now that, that same Taiwanese may say, you know what, maybe I'll go to Phoenix. Maybe I'll go to Dallas. Maybe I'll go to Houston. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm going to be able to live the life that I want to live. Sometimes they say, well, uh, people in Asia, they really want to live in, in they like crowded conditions. I said, if they like crowded conditions, they could have stayed home. When you go here where I live in Orange County, California, which is much more heavily Asian than LA, where do you think Chinese people live? They live in Irvine. They live in Fountain Valley. They live in the track homes built in the, in the 50s and 60s. Sometimes they tear them down and make bigger ones. That's what people's aspirations are. Silicon Valley has become anti-aspirational for all but a few people. And then they wonder why both left-wingers and right-wingers are objecting to them. Now, the Silicon Valley's next struggle is going to be political. On the one hand, President Biden and and many Democrats um, have to respond to the fact that that Silicon Valley is very unpopular. Um, They're going to have to respond to the fact that people are going to say, well, you know, they, they bailed out Silicon Valley Bank because they had all these important companies if I'm a, I'm a mid-sized bank in Oklahoma and I, I have oil and agriculture and Main Street businesses as my clients, they're not important. They, they shouldn't be protected. So I think the Democrats have this equity, if you will, issue or this egalitarian issue, which Silicon Valley is very bad at now, um, in their unbelievable arrogance the Silicon Valley decided to become the main funder of the Democratic Party and identify with every progressive cause. And then they wonder why, well, Republicans who usually, you know, will, you know, slobber after anyone with money um, are saying, you know, we, we have nothing to gain. If I'm a conservative, I have nothing to gain from Meta, from Google, from, from, from uh, Apple, from Microsoft, from uh, Amazon. I'm their enemy. They're, they're trying to squash me or they don't want to do anything that, that would help my constituents. So you've got this coalition of the right-wing populists and the left-wing populists. If they could ever come together, I think Silicon Valley's got some serious problems. I, I actually wanted to ask you about what the political impact of Silicon Valley's decline or its inertia, what it might be. So as you say, Silicon Valley is the key funder of the, of the Democrats. Um, they share so many political viewpoints. But the problem for the Biden administration and others is that Silicon Valley is increasingly unpopular. People are wary of it. They're skeptical of its motives. And if you think about something like the Twitter files, I, I wanted to get your view on the on the Twitter files and the revelation of pretty conscious efforts at suppressing certain viewpoints on social media, especially conservative ones, right wing ones, people who are critical of lockdown and so on. 
And bit by bit, I think more and more people, as you say, both the right and sections of the left, which I think is is very important, are starting to become increasingly sceptical of what Silicon Valley is about politically. What impact do you think that will have, firstly, on Silicon Valley? Will they feel the need to tone down the political virtuous projects and focus on what they're supposed to be doing? And what impact will it have on on the Democrats if if they feel the need to weaken their connection with Silicon Valley? Won't that be a problem for the Democratic establishment? Well, I think it will be a a problem long term. I mean, I work right now with a group um, in trying to turn around some of California's problems. And I think there is a growing consciousness among some people in the Valley that something has to be changed. The problem is, how do you do that without getting attacked massively by you know the Twitter mobs and the and 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 the 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 you know the the you know the heavily funded nonprofits who will jump on you if you try to do anything. Um, they have a political problem too, which is in a funny way they've gotten out of control. My my friend Jim Wonderman, who runs the Bay Area Council, I said why why are these guys you know giving money to Black Lives Matter, which is clearly anti-capitalist to say the least, and 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 he says. They're more scared of their employees that you've got a bunch of people in in Silicon Valley, particularly people in HR, in marketing, in the public relations side of, of the companies, not so much the engineers, but some of them, too, who have very, very stridently left wing politics, have been indoctrinated in the, in the college system. Um, and it will be very difficult for Silicon Valley to backtrack and go towards the center, which is its natural political home. It used to be the center of moderate republicanism. Um, So I think that that's a problem. The the one saving grace for the Democrats is if Donald Trump runs, um, everyone will still run to the Democrats because Donald Trump is so odious. But it's a serious problem. It's probably going to be a fundraising issue, too, because I don't think these Silicon Valley companies have the kind of... um, uh, of largesse that they used to have. Um, I think there's even a bigger issue, which is the failure of, of blue states, blue cities, blue metro regions is not good advertising for the Democrats because they would always hold up, well, you want to be like California or you want to be like New York or you want to be like Washington State. Well, all those states are having significant problems. Uh, Oregon is, you know, the Portland area is losing population. So, there's a what the, my friend Walter Russell Mead calls the blue state model. Um, that model isn't very persuasive. I mean, if I'm Ron DeSantis and I'm defending the economic record of Florida and Biden, who I guess is more or less um, has a brain implant from California, um, you know, what is Biden going to say? Oh, well, we really need to be like 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 California or or Illinois or or New York, all of whom are losing population and have budget deficits. I mean, so the collapse of that model is by itself a a major problem for the Democrats because they can't point to something that works. Now, I'll give you an opposite example. It's almost quaint to discuss it 40 years later. When Ronald Reagan was running for president, he could say, I was governor of California, and look what California has done. That's what I think DeSantis is going to try to do with Florida. Um, now, I don't think what Florida has done is remotely as important as what California did. But you got—I'm a Californian. I've been here for fifty years. Um, I, you know, I, I still think it's a unique and amazing place. But I think to sell it to the rest of the country, you know, when I moved here, um, nobody ever said, "Oh no, you can't go to California. There's not opportunity. It's too expensive." But today, that's what you see. You, you know, when I I was recently in, in Houston at the Woodlands, and it's filled with people who are from California, people younger than me, you know, people maybe in their 40s and 50s, maybe even their 30s, who have decided that to live a middle-class lifestyle, they have to be somewhere else. That's not a great recommendation for the Democratic Party positions, which are essentially the Silicon Valley Democratic positions that they're, they're you know believe me, they have nothing to do with delaware <laughs> listening to you there made me think that perhaps silicon valley has created its own grave diggers only it's not marx's working class it's the twitter mob and and their millennial 
employees with, you know, their strange haircuts and their strange political views. And feel if Silicon Valley feels hostage to those forces, then you can really see that you can really see that causing some severe problems. I mean, we find it almost impossible, even though you'll sit down with tech executives, they'll agree with you about almost everything that you say, but they'll never say it publicly. It will become very entertaining, by the way, when we get to reparations. Yes. (laughs) California's reparations bill, $600 billion in a state that was never a slave state, in which the only real slave population were Native Americans, enslaved, by the way, by the Spanish. Um, You know, so we're going to have this debate where... The average person knows that this is absurd, but can Tim Cook say I'm against reparations? Yeah. I don't think he can. I think that that they are so worried about their own people. And then they're surrounded by a, a media and political culture that is very intolerant um, of any kind of debate. I mean, that's one of the things that's so astounding to me is how do you how do you correct a um, a situation when you cannot openly oppose the current policies yeah i mean like we we we've been arguing um here in california said if intel's going to build a new plant why don't they build it in fresno it's cheaper it's closer to where where their people are there's a labor force that would desperately need these jobs but we can't because we in order to follow the california climate regime you can't really build a major industrial plant in california anymore so what we're doing is we're really hurting our own working class. And 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 I, I, I think that this model is not going to sell very well in the rest of the country. Um, I think that's, I mean, it'll be very interesting what Gavin Newsom has to do when he's got to go out there and, you know, he's saying, oh, well, we're the freedom model. Well, first of all, besides that, California is hardly a freedom model. If you see some of the laws that have been passed here, you know, where, you know, one of these days you're going to get arrested for breathing. Um you know, the fact of the matter, this is not an attractive model. So, you know, I remember not too long ago, I was in, speaking in Florida, and I was walking along and looking at the people and said, you know what, these are people who would have come to California 30 years ago. Yeah. Because if you were young, ambitious, and, and you wanted to be in a place with, you know, with all these great amenities, you went to California. But now, where do you go? You You go to Florida, you go to North Carolina, you go even to places like Northwest Arkansas. You go to other parts of the country where you, you can live a high quality of life, where there are lots of jobs uh, at all levels, and where you can afford to buy a house. And Silicon Valley has completely lost it. The, the Silicon Valley guys are completely supportive of all the policies which make it impossible for anyone but the rich to own a house. They want people to live in little apartments that they themselves, I'm sure, would never want to live in. And uh, if I'm a skilled worker and I can go to New Albany, Ohio, and live in a really nice house with good schools, a- as opposed to having to to go uh, in California and and maybe have to send your kids to private schools and 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 where you can't afford to buy a house, you're going to make that move. So the advertising for the blue states, epitomized by Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley was their best case scenario. Um, that case is much weaker than it was. Spiked couldn't do what we do without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself. Those of you who donate £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are eligible to become a Spiked supporter. Being a Spiked supporter gives you access to a whole range of perks, including discounted or free tickets to all our events, discounts in our shop, and the ability to bookmark and comment on articles. So become a Spike supporter today by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. You said something a moment ago, which touches on some things I've been thinking about. You were talking about um, Silicon Valley's support for even for movements that are very clearly anti-capitalist. So Black Lives Matter is a very good example. They throw money at Black Lives Matter, even though Black Lives Matter is ostensibly, calls itself a revolutionary movement that wants to tear down capitalist institutions. You can also see Silicon Valley's agitation with capitalism in its obsession with climate change, which is really a way of saying, you know, all of the industrial capitalism that came before us, 
was dirty, destructive, problematic. We're cleaner, we're more virtuous, we're not polluting the environment. It's a real kind of self-conscious juxtaposition with uh, capitalist history. But then also, as well as striking these anti-capitalist poses, Silicon Valley is pretty anti-family. You can see that with its embrace of radical gender ideology. It's even turning against the great American ideal of equality with its embrace of new ideas of racial equity, which very often is a code for behaving in a racial manner and judging people by their race rather than by their character. Um, and it's it's obviously anti-religion. I'm sure many people who work in Silicon Valley would be very sniffy about people in America who <laughs> cling to their Bibles and their guns, to quote Obama. So it does quite consciously define itself against what one might say are the founding important values of the American Republic. Entrepreneurship, risk-taking, the idea of equality, the idea that having a stable family is good, the American dream. And I wonder if this is more than just a contradiction, i.e. anti-capitalist capitalists, but if it speaks to something more profound, a, a, a kind of modern crisis of the capitalist class. And I, I wonder if you sometimes find yourself a bit like me. I'm, I'm in the curious position of coming from the left, but increasingly wanting to defend capitalist ideas from the way in which they are currently being assaulted by um, backward new movements and backward new elites. H how do you think that contradictory process is going to play out from Silicon Valley and beyond? Well, I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, even though people on the right and the left, for instance, would look at the Silicon Valley bank bailout as, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is socialism. It's and not socialism. It's corporatism. It's, you know, somewhere in the realm between corporatism and feudalism. So essentially what they're really saying in some senses, and if they can get the regulations, it will make it even easier for them, is that say now we have these four or five dominant companies. That's not going to change. And they're going to be partners with the government. You know, very much, you know, I, I think somewhere Benito Mussolini is smiling um, because this is very much the corporatist model that we have these. And, and by the way, the CIA and FBI people have, have testified that, you know, why we shouldn't regulate Silicon Valley, because these are national treasures. I mean, this notion of there being five or six dominant companies whose, whose fate is everything. It's a kind of capitalism, but it's capitalism much closer to what you see in China than what you see, um, what you see historically in the United States. So this whole culture of entrepreneurship and, you know, you know, and, and look, sometimes it, you fail. I mean, in Silicon Valley, the old story used to be that that failure was the first step to success, that you you knew you went bankrupt and you started all over again. And but now we essentially have this kind of permanent system, which is what Silicon Valley Bank bailout is. We're going to keep these companies that many of whom are not making any money. Um, why would you deposit all your money in one bank? You just sit there and say, what? I mean, I'm I'm hardly you know a, a multi million dollar startup, but I, I'm smart enough to know that I wouldn't put all my money in one bank. Um, so the reality is they are undermining the very model of capitalism and replacing it with something else. Now, what I think long term is, although they've been able to buy the silence or the acquiescence of some of the far left, eventually it's going to catch up to them. Um, you know, I love this concept of fully automated luxury communism, which is to say, okay, we've got all this technology to make life better. Why don't we just nationalize all of it and apply it to people's lives? Now, I don't think it will work. And I think giving that much power to the state is very scary, but I could see the appeal. You mentioned climate change. And how long, if you are a hysteric about climate change, how do you justify Jeff Bezos? you know, with a giant yacht and numerous houses and private jet and and is going to shoot his girlfriend into outer space? Is that something that makes any sense for people who are saying that we have to have degrowth and austerity? So the, the obvious contradictions, if you want to put it in the Marxist sense, between the extraordinarily wealthy people supporting a essentially anti-capitalist agenda at some point, it, it's going to bite back. And I think eventually um, you're going to find that some people on the left who have not been bought 
are going to protest and the lot on the right who have not been born. The problem is Silicon Valley is very good at buying people. And, you know, we'll see whether or not, you know, people have the the, the conviction to, to stand up to them. But clearly what, what they don't recognize, because frankly, they don't know any history anyway, is you're undermining the very ideal of capitalism. By making it a static system, you undermine its dynamism and its appeal. Very much like, you know, if you look at British history, which I've studied a lot of, you know, in British history, the the aristocratic attitudes of the industrial elite um, did something to help create the environment which went to, towards socialism. Because, I mean, my feeling is I would rather have socialism than corporatism. At least socialism has the goal of making life better for people. These people have their goal isn't to make life better for people. It's actually to make life worse, to interfere with your privacy even more, to to support policies where the average middle and working class family can never uh, attain, you know, anything close to the American dream. So I think in a funny way, they, they you know, uh, it would be a historic irony if they're uh, digging their own grave. Um, but they're certainly creating a situation where it's going to be increasingly difficult to back them up. I mean, how can you justify bailing out the deposits of ultra-rich people um, when, you know, there's a reason why there's a $250,000 limit, you know? I mean, you're telling me that if, if the money belonged to an oil company, which I would argue maybe is more important right now than a tech company, they wouldn't get any sympathy. Yeah. Nobody would bail them out. So, I mean, you know, fundamentally what you're doing is you're creating a situation where you're undermining the message to the middle and working class, but you're also undermining your your message to um, to people um, on the left. You know, I mean, these are companies that are resisting unionization. Um, they they have moved their jobs either overseas or to other parts of the country. I don't see where, where it's a great advertisement um, and something that people are going to be persuaded by i think the um the point about the the new corporatist elites undermining the ideals of capitalism in particular the dynamism of capitalism is is very in, a very important one i think also just to pick up on your comments about um fully automated luxury communism i think there's a danger that those kinds of ideas which are growing in, in sections of the left potentially undermine the dynamism that once existed in Marxism, because I think what some of those ideas too, this this idea of a tech-enabled future in which people wouldn't have to work so much and life could be pretty nice, I think it does two things. Firstly, it pushes aside the revolutionary ideas that once existed in communism, the idea that people would have to struggle to create a society and through that process would become free, would become more autonomous. And I think if you remove the idea of revolutionary struggle or contest, then you're not really grappling with the tensions in society and instead are imagining that capitalism can fix people's lives or the state rather can fix people's lives. But also, I think the other thing those ideas do, which I think are very problematic, is they push notions of universal basic income, where huge sections of the working class would essentially be put out to pasture. They would be paid to do nothing. You've written about how that would potentially undermine workers' agency, their desire for autonomy, their desire to be productive. So I wonder if if one of the issues that people aren't willing to grapple with, uh, although you do and, and others do as well, is the issue of populism. Because it does seem to me that there is a a, a brimming confrontation with the new elites that's taking place around the world in different forms. We saw it with Brexit. We saw it with the electoral victory of certain parties in Europe. We saw it, of course, with the strange Trump phenomenon, the kind of brute instrument used by sections of the American electorate to teach the establishment a lesson. Is there a danger that on the one hand, you have the new corporatist elites who want to lecture to and control working people? On the other hand, you have a left that is too often bristles at populism and wonders if we might just fast forward to a luxury era and both sides are neglecting a growing conflict in society that it's really worth talking about. It would make sense that as a society becomes more bifurcated and where the, where the middle class is declining, middle class 
small property owners have always been the basis of democratic societies, you know, because somebody who owns their home has something, has a stake in the society, uh, wants things to, to go better. Now, when the oligarchs start talking about the universal basic income, which you referred to, you know, this idea that, well, really, we don't need people. I mean, what is the vision of Silicon Valley? And when what you realize is that for that many of them, they really don't have a very positive view of humanity. A, a friend of mine who is friends with both Musk and Zuckerberg said to me, he said, you have to understand, these people do not believe in the future of, of this planet. Um, uh, Zuckerberg wants us to lose ourselves in the metaverse, and Musk wants to get us off the planet. Um, I mean, so, you know, their view of the world is just a very negative view. They, they don't see the value of the average person in reality. Their goal is to replace, even if it's not even the, the something that improves anything, to replace labor with technology and capital. That's what they're doing. If you continue that direction, you're going to get the, exactly what you're talking about. You know, you're going to get um, the kind of protests we're seeing in France right now. What's happening with, with the Dutch farmers? What's happening with Brexit? What happened with, uh, with Trump? What's happened with, with both the populace of the right and the populace of the left in this country? I mean, look at France. I mean, the two people who are really speaking to the French middle class are, and working class are Mélenchon and, and, and Le Pen. You know, Macron would probably be more comfortable on the board of a Silicon Valley company <laughs> than as president. I mean, he has the right personality. The degree of arrogance, the degree of, if you almost want to call it anti-humanism, uh, is really quite strong. So that the, the the ideals of family, the ideals of of the individual proprietor, the ideals of upward mobility, of success via merit, have been thrown out the window, which really just makes it you know makes them far less credible to most people. And we have to say, what kind of spiritual universe are we going to get from these people? Yeah, I mean, the, their their favorite idea is. To, to download your your uh, electrons to the cloud and so you can live forever. This is their, I guess, their version of, uh, of heaven, you know. So, I mean, you essentially have a mentality that strips away all the things that made capitalism work. Going back to what Weber wrote about, what Marx wrote about, this idea of ambition and moving forward. And their vision is not one that really has much of a future for most people. I mean, my idea is the perfect person in the in the Silicon Valley universe is living in a, in a one-bedroom or studio apartment with a bong and a bottle of Tito's, uh, you know, with a cat and a plant and spending their time, you know, watching porn and playing video games. That That is the person that we're going to create at the end of this. It is not our vision of the sort of individual family that has some security and 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 maybe owns a little bit of property and hopes to do better with their kids. Remember, we're talking about a an era in which the economic prospects of young people are worse than their parents. Yeah. We haven't seen that, you know, for a very long time. And and so I think that that Silicon Valley, you know, is basically not providing a a way out of that is actually accentuating that situation. And I think they have no consciousness of, of what people's normal aspirations are. And of course, if the vast majority of your workforce is made up of, of people who aren't American citizens to start with, and in many cases are there on a temporary visa, what the hell do they care? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned there, you, you said that Macron would probably be more comfortable on a Silicon Valley board. Uh, well, of course, uh, Britain is currently led by uh, Rishi Sunak, who Ed Miliband, the former leader of the Labour Party, refers to as the dude from Silicon Valley, because he did, of course, study business in the US. He worked in Santa Monica for a hedge fund. He has a lot of those Californian values and that Californian style. Uh, he even retained his green card, of, uh, which, of course, would give him the right to live and work in the U.S., which caused a huge controversy here. How can you have a chancellor of the Exchequer and then a prime minister who has uh, an attachment to two different countries? Um, 
Okay, Joel, my last question for you, a difficult one to answer probably, is um, you've written about the great awakening, the uh, embrace of strange new values by the by the new corporatist capitalist elites. Uh, you've described brilliantly over the past hour the contempt these people often feel for ordinary people or the lack of understanding they have for ordinary people's lives and what people want. But I want to ask you if you feel optimistic about that great awakening potentially being undone or at least chipped away at by what we might refer to as the great awakening amongst many voters who are looking for different forms of politics, who are pushing back with parental rebellions at school over gender ideology being taught to their kids or by voting for populist parties that they're told not to vote for, or just by indicating their disapproval of some of the virtues that come from Silicon Valley and other parts of the new establishment. Are you confident that if there is a clash between the Great Awakening and the Great Awakening, that people like me and you might come out on on the right side? You know, I think that that there are some reasons for some optimism. Um, First of all, as I've mentioned, I think a lot of executives in the Silicon Valley um, understand that what they're doing isn't working so well um, and that the state, for instance, has to change some of its regulatory and tax policies. But more importantly, I think that there are groups who look at the model that's being developed in, in Silicon Valley and, and is basically the Democratic Party economic policy. And they look at it and they say, well, what's in it for us? And there are different things. The Hispanic working class has got to look at Silicon Valley and realize that there's not much of a place for them in that system. Um, Asians, these are two fastest growing groups in the United States. Um, Asians are a group who, you know, they have completely built their strategy around merit and hard work and family. Those values are not believed in. So both Hispanics and Asians have been becoming more politically independent. I don't think they're majority either are going to be majority Republican in the near future, but they're moving in in a direction where there's certainly their votes are up for grabs. Um, You know, whereas Obama was a sort of uniting figure for both Hispanics and Asians and African-Americans, I think that that's not happening in the current circumstance. Um, I also think that there is a rebellion within the university system among at least some of the older uh, professors. Um, I certainly hear a, a lot about it. Um, you know, when a when a, a person comes and speaks to our engineering kids and starts talking about how math is racist, <laughs> president of my university is a, an Italian mathematician. I don't think I don't think he thinks that's a very good thing. So I think the 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 degree of illogic that's being pushed is going to have a pushback. The question is going to be. Will it happen fast enough? And probably the real determinant is going to be the Xers are already, you know, moving much much more to the center, even to the right, will be what happens to millennials. Will they be, as they used to say, mugged by reality and begin to realize that this program is not very good for them? I mean, I can tell you that among people who are, you know, of, you know, Asian or Jewish backgrounds, you know, they're going to say, what do you mean we're getting rid of merit? You know, my own father had to deal with quotas at Ivy League schools in the 1930s. Why would we almost 100 years later bring them back? We've had this enormous gift of these very motivated young Asian people who are have revitalized economies around the, the country and, and are, are you know one of the great resources that we have, that the Canadians have, that the Australians have. And if you start taking merit away, they're going to rebel. So I think that there there is a silent or quiet rebellion that's beginning to take place among these groups. And also, I think, among some millennials. I've been I'm looking at where millennials are moving. They're moving increasingly to Texas, to Tennessee, to Florida. They're not moving to California. California is becoming very old. Um, Our birth rate is very low. so I think a, a a new and perhaps more small d democratic society is still possible. Um, but a lot of it is going to depend on whether or not the media remains open or whether or not 
ideas like the ones we're discussing right now get canceled or get, you know, oh, this stuff is not factual, which, you know, but if I was there ranting and raving about about some absurd green or Black Lives Matter position, that, that would never happen. But if the message can get out, then you have the advantage. People see with their own eyes. You know, you can't tell people, hey, you know what, you know, cities are safe. And then and then, you know, drive around, you know, New Orleans or Chicago or 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 parts of Los Angeles and not say it's kind of scary to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there is a potential. The big problem is who is going to appeal to it, who's going to coalesce it. Uh, unfortunately, as long as Trump is around, I think it's going to be very difficult. And even people who agree with everything that we've said on this program still can't stomach Donald Trump and will will, will either not vote or vote for Joe Biden. Um, and until some new figure comes out, my my real hope is that we get somebody like Bill Clinton again. I, I voted Clinton. He's the last president they voted for. Um, and... Um, you know, but I don't know whether that can come out of the Democratic Party today. Um, and that's a place where if the oligarchs are intelligent, they would start cultivating, you know, someone like a Bill Clinton who could, you know, sort of address these populist concerns. But right now, I think they're they're too f- fearful of their own employees and the the Democratic apparatus to say anything. Joel Cochin, thank you very much. OK, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.